This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Views on View. This week on our panel, we have Eric Hanchett, author of UJS in Action. Hello, hello. Divya Sasidaran, developer advocate at Netlify and View contributor. Hello. Uh, Chris Fritz from the View core team. Hi. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to plug the Get a Coder job this time. So if you're looking for a job, go check it out. Course and ebook you can pick. So anyway, uh, so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about contributing to the community. And I think we all decided that we hadn't covered to our satisfaction how to get started making those kinds of contributions, especially in open source. So uh, yeah, let, let's dive in and talk a little about that. I think last time we basically just went around and talked about the different ways that people, at least on the panel, like do contribute to open source. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we can do that again r real quick, just to, for people who might not have listened to that first episode. So uh, very briefly, I guess one of the ways that I contribute to open source is like writing code, writing documentation, organizing events, like helping coordinate people in a community to like get resources to where they need to go so that other people can also contribute in their own ways. And then Divya, you also write some code, right? You write a little bit of code. <laughs> Just a little. Divya, do you yeah, know how to code? <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, and, and you, but you don't work on any core repositories right now, but you do produce some things in the ecosystem. Yes. Like projects that other people can use. Yep. And then you also speak at conferences and yes. meetups and stuff like that. And write blog posts and try to improve the... I'm very invested in the Vue ecosystem, so or like the Vue community. So that's like currently what I spend a lot of time doing or trying to to like grow. Yeah. Yeah, and, and lately you've been working on something that we, if we have time, I think it could be interesting to talk about later, if you can talk about it, this uh, super secret project that you've been working on. Wait. Oh, the, the statistics. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Maybe, yeah. yeah. And then Eric, there are also a few different ways that that you contribute. Sort of as an educator, right? Yeah, mostly education, kind of like Divya with blogs, but mostly video for me. And then just kind of going through and teaching how things work is kind of how I prefer to do it. I've tried in the past of looking for issues in different open source GitHub projects and working on them, but it I find. I'm better at just uh, teaching. And then Chuck, I, I hear you run a view podcast. Yeah, that's the rumor. <laughs> Which some of our listeners may be familiar with. Maybe. In the sense that they're listening to it right now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I do the podcasts. I'm also working on a book and videos. So kind of in the vein uh, that Eric is... And in the past, I've also done some online conferences, for lack of a better, kind of online summits. And I, I'm looking at uh, spitting that back up. And then I think last time I also mentioned Code Badge, which is a project that I currently have on Kickstarter. And I just think it'd be a fun way to get the community to kind of talk to each other about 
what they're doing. So, Yeah. And on the first part of this episode, we talked a lot about how we can contribute to open source and kind of like still make a living. Mm -hmm. Like how we decide like what we do for free, whether like what do we charge or versus what do we charge for and managing those kinds of decisions. Because if you're donating all your time to open source and then like you like lose your house and have to live in the streets, that's not sustainable. You won't be contributing to open source for long. (laughs) (laughs) So finding a balance is important. And we, we covered that pretty well, I think. Something we didn't cover though is how to get into open source uh, and contribute in these varieties of ways if you're not already doing it. So if you're not already speaking, like how do you start speaking? If you're not already like writing code and contributing to open source projects, how do you do that? So maybe we should start by kind of going around or or maybe talking about a, a specific kind of contribution at first. And maybe speaking would be a good one to start with. And I, I don't know if Divya, you have some ideas on like for someone who hasn't done speaking before, like how do they get into it? How do they start? Do they yeah. need a public speaking degree from <laughs> university or something like that? No, but it might help. I, I, it doesn't help. Um, I don't even know if there's a degree. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, wait, maybe Toastmasters? I don't know. I, I don't know what the, the degree certification is. Um, but yeah, to get started with public speaking, it's actually deceptively easy but not at the same time which is kind of weird because a lot of conferences have like a cfp process so you it's a call for papers and so you would submit a proposal for what you want to talk about and then it gets accepted or rejected and it seems pretty easy but a lot of the times for beginner speakers getting through the cfp process is always the hard part because you have to learn how to craft your message to some extent because you're like oh I have an idea of what I want to write about and then you have to somehow convince like your goal when you write a CFP is to convince the review committee that what you have to talk about is uh, relevant to the conference and that you are somewhat of an expert or at least you can make yourself seem like you're an expert at that specific content Um, because a lot of the times like what you want to talk about is not unique. So there'll be multiple people who want to talk about similar things. And so you're competing with other people. And so I think the first step of speaking, strangely enough, isn't the actual speaking, it's the writing of it. Because it's like, you have to understand how exactly you want to present your message or like your specific piece of content. I, I don't know, like that seems like and, a completely different. Type. And for people who, who might not be familiar, like you, you talked about CFPs, like what's a CFP? Um, yeah, so I'm, I, I might have like glanced over that, but it's a call for papers. And so uh, it's funny because it's a very like academic sounding term because we, <laughs> but it's essentially just a process of um, going, of being accepted to speak at a conference. And so a lot of conferences tend to have um, an open call for papers uh, where you have the, they have like a, a form either in Google forms or they might use like some software um, for you to fill out details. So you fill out like in addition to obviously personal details, you would fill out um, like the topic that you want to talk about. So the title of your talk, um, like a short draft that will probably be used on the website as a description for your talk if it gets selected. And then you probably have a longer description where you can go into detail talking about like what you will cover, 
the maybe the format of what you cover, why you're the most uh, I you're probably the best person to talk about this and so on. And so there's a multi-step process. It's fairly consistent across multiple conferences and events. Um, and that's like essentially what you have to go through in the, in the first start, the first, the beginning of like wanting to give a talk. So what do you do if you don't think you're probably the best person in the world to talk about that thing, I think, <laughs> but I, <laughs> you think you could do a good job? Yeah. So, so it's actually like, even though I say like, you're the best person to talk about it, it's all about how you convince, like it's about convincing um, the review committee that you are the best person. So you don't necessarily have to be the best person ever. You just have to be like, you know, just sound like you know what you're talking about and that you have done your research uh, because I think that's something that they also care about, um, that you have like some understanding of what you're talking about and that you are incre- you're capable of like presenting on that information when the conference comes around. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's essentially what like, you know, being the best person to give the talk means. Uh, yeah. I, I would just add to that, um, especially lately, I've, I've been speaking to a number of conference organizers and they, they're not always looking for like the expert level content, right? So if you can come in and you can give a beginner level or an introduction or explanation of something that's more on a basic level, or at least basic principles level, even if it is a little bit complicated that you understand well, a lot of times they don't get those submissions. They like getting new speakers. And if you can demonstrate that you're capable of delivering the content, I think is what Divya is trying to put across. You convince them that you're capable of, of delivering it well. They may pick your talk, even though they have one that's, here's how to get man on the moon with Vue.js. Another thing that I, I, I'll also throw out there is that because uh, I've spoken at a number of conferences. And when I started speaking, I started speaking at uh, users groups, at meetups. And that's a whole lot easier. Because mm-hmm. then you just talk to the um, the organizer. Most organizers are pretty desperate to get speakers anyway. And so you can just go in and say, hey, I'd really like to give this talk. And then it's especially if it's a talk that you would like to give at a conference, then you can get feedback on it. You can find out what parts of it people like. You can find out what they got out of it. And then you can put that into your proposal when you go to speak at a conference. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, similarly, lightning talks are also really great for that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of meetups do that kind of format. So it gives you a very low barrier to entry to start speaking. So at yeah. least you can start like fielding ideas and trying to flesh out what exactly you want to talk about at a larger event. Yeah. Another thing that I've run into with this is that uh, a lot of people aren't confident that they're a good speaker. So they either don't know or they actively think that they're not. And honestly, the best way to figure this out and to get better is just to practice. Uh, Divya mentioned Toastmasters. I'm going to hold up my certificate for all the people who are just getting the audio. But uh, <laughs> I, I've i been a member of Toastmasters for a long time. Um, I have a scheduling conflict with it right now, so I haven't gone for a while. But I have my advanced communicator bronze, which is a level above competent communicator, which is the basic speaking level. And you wind up getting all kinds of experience, giving all kinds of different talks. Um, And they have different manuals for different skills. So there's like a storytelling and speaking to inform and professional speaking. And, you know, so all these different areas that you can focus on once you get your basic competent communicator 
which each speech in that focuses on one area of speaking. So you'll, you'll get practice, you'll get feedback, you get all of this help. And then when you go to speak, it really helps you be able to build the skills and habits that make it more natural for you to give a good speech. So I actually don't know that much about Toastmasters. Does it, is it like a, is it like a club? Do you it's have to club. pay to belong to it? Yep, they do collect dues. I don't remember it costing all that much. But the club I went to met every Thursday morning at 7 a.m., which meant that I got up at 6 a.m. so I could be there. I now have another call at 7 a.m. on Thursdays, and I'm trying to find another club to go to. But yeah, so you pay dues, and then you just go and participate. And as you sit in the meeting, you have the opportunity to give feedback to the speakers. If you're a speaker, they also have an awe master who will call out all of your ums, ahs, you knows, all all the disfluencies that you throw into your speaking. And that's a good way to keep track of what you're doing and how you're doing and things like that. They also have a grammarian who will point out any grammatical errors you make. And you will have an evaluator on your speech. And so they'll get up and they'll say, you were fidgeting with your hands or you should tell more stories or things like that. And that feedback is really, really helpful. Most of the speeches are like five to seven minutes. And so you're not up there for a half hour and then getting grilled. It really is a very constructive and friendly environment to get the kind of feedback you need in order to improve at speaking. Yeah, I went to a couple of Toastmasters in my Reno and I, I didn't realize there's a ton of them just even oh, yeah. where, where I live. And they all get, they, all the meetings are early in the morning. I don't know if that's just what they normally do. But yeah, it's all like 7 a.m., 7.30 a.m. And then, yeah, it's just people get in there and start talking and and everything Chuck just said. Uh, I, I went to a couple just to just check it out. And they don't force you to talk if you just mm-hmm. want to like check it out. So if you just want to go there and, and see what it is, you can just listen in, which is kind of nice. So yeah, so I, I, I'd say that's a great way to get used to talking to. Yeah, most of the ones that I've seen are either in the morning or the evening. And it's mainly to accommodate most people who are interested in learning to speak better are professional in some way they go to work. And so it's mostly to accommodate that. I have seen a few others that are either in the early afternoon or around lunchtime. And so people can show up during their lunch break. And also speaking at a local meetup is an option. Yep. Uh, I think Divya mentioned. Although if you're in a big city, it can be hard to get into meetups sometimes. It can be really competitive in some cases, more competitive than if you're in a smaller town. So like, I guess, what do you do if uh, Toastmaster sounds like a little bit intimidating? And you don't want to, or let's say you don't feel like you could uh, speak at a meetup yet because either there aren't a lot of meetups in your area or they're really competitive. Like, are there any options for getting more experience and starting to practice? Go in front of the courthouse and be like the town crier. Just start. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Stand on your soapbox. (laughs) Stand on a soapbox and just... Anybody, I mean, it, literally, if you walk down San Francisco, there's going to be somebody or most major cities, there's somebody sitting you know, on a soapbox somewhere and just screaming to the crowd. But those people are kind of crazy, though. Yeah, I, but I mean, you can also do a short podcast or YouTube videos or Facebook Live or something like that. But you don't get the live feedback. And I think that's important. Um, yeah. Honestly, most users groups and most 
uh, Toastmasters clubs are going to be very, very understanding, especially if you get up and you say, hey, this is my first time. I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm excited to share what I've got. Most of the time, they'll, they'll be rooting for you. In fact, I've never gotten in front of a hostile crowd, even if it was a crowd that wasn't really into what I was talking about or had reasons to be a hostile crowd. Most of the time, you get up and they're rooting for you to give them what they want. And so it, it's, it's not as scary as people make it out to be because you're not going to destroy your reputation or anything like that. It's just, you know, if you mess up, you just stop, take a deep breath and keep going. And again, the, the crowd's rooting for you. They're on your side almost every time. A few things that I'd probably recommend if you don't have those kinds of opportunities is, uh, first of all, if you have like any local theater, like mm -hmm. try to be a part of that. that. That really helps a lot. And it's so much easier to talk, I find, when you actually have lines. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so that can be like a, a really good intro to like speaking in front of a lot of people, especially if that's something that you're kind of afraid of. When you have time to prepare and actually like memorize all the things that you're going to say, and you have the option, if you're doing theater, of not being yourself, because a lot of people, they're kind of afraid that like people are going to hate them personally. You know, they're, they're, they're going to think like you're stupid. But if you are performing a character, like that character can be whoever you want. And if you're saying like a lot of ums and ahs and stuff like that, maybe that's part of the character. <laughs> like they don't necessarily know as long as you, you do it with energy. Uh, yeah, it's a lot easier to have a good performance. And, and also, like teaching, if you have opportunities to do some kind of teaching, you don't necessarily have to be like a professional teacher, but it, there are often volunteer opportunities uh, to to teach in a variety of settings. You know, maybe there's uh, like a programming, like short programming course that you could teach for kids at a local library or something like that. Uh, it's worth checking with local institutions like community centers and libraries uh, to see if they have opportunities like that or if they'd be open to opportunities like that. Also on the theater point, improv is really good for that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I have friends who do improv and they keep trying to rope me into it. <laughs> but um, it's, it's really good because back to your point, Chris, that you can be not yourself because you're like acting. And then improv is also like, you don't have the benefit of having lines, but you do have practice thinking on the spot, which is often what happens when you're at a talk, when you're giving a talk sometimes. I mean, sometimes there's a lot of preparation, but there are moments where like you might forget what you want to say, or someone might make, make a comment in the middle of your talk and you have to like react to that. And so like improv kind of helps in those moments, like going off of your like theater point. Yes. And I feel teaching is also really good for that because things always True. go wrong when you're teaching. Like, uh, you know, people don't have the background that you expected them to have, uh, or, you know, people, you know, thought something that you didn't think that they would think, or, you know, an explanation that you thought would work really well, just doesn't. And then you have to respond totally on the fly. Like, live teaching is improv <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, but the thing that's interesting about it is you learn the patterns that work. With improv, you learn the patterns that work, you learn how to interact with the other people you're doing improv with when you're teaching you learn when i respond this way it works better than when i respond that way and and that's the kind of practice and you know feedback and all the things that you get out of that you have to do it over and over and you have to mess it up a couple times before you really understand oh this works this doesn't yeah absolutely
I'd say this also, I just, I haven't used these sites, but I know there's a couple of websites a lot of people use like papercall.io mm-hmm. just has tons of different uh, CFP proposals. You can add it to your calendar, you can track it. So I think if you're really diligent, really wanted to talk, you could probably, you know, do go to one of these websites and apply for, you know, five or 10 different talks, for five or 10 different conferences, maybe add two talk, maybe pitch like two talks for each conference. You'll probably maybe get one. You might have to pay your own way to get there, but there's just tons of conferences looking for speakers all over the world. And another website is the weeklycfp.com. And this one's down right now, but I've heard of lanyard.com too. L-A-N-Y-R-D.com. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think Mozilla has a tech CFP Twitter account and they tweet uh, every time a CFP is closing like the deadline. So they usually give you like about a week or two notice. And so if you follow the account, sometimes you'll see just like, hey, there's like this CFP that's closing in a week. And so you get that reminder if you check Twitter and that's your MO. But I think they have a page as well, like a, a web page with all of the CFPs. So you can plan based on what is posted on there as well. Yeah. One other recommendation I have is take your CFP and have somebody else look at it. So in, in my case, I know a handful of conference organizers. So when I'm getting ready to submit a CFP, I send it to them and get the feedback on it. They can tell me what's missing. It's not cheating. Yeah. You, you want people to like, before they even see, like you, there's usually like a title and a description. And those are the parts that like, once you get accepted, that the people who are attending talks will see and figuring out like, huh, do I want to go to this talk? Or is this one that I should skip and like have a conversation out in the hallway? Or is this something that's going to make me want to come to the conference more? You know, because the, the organizers, you know, want to be really useful to attendees and want to sell tickets. And so they're going to be thinking about this at the same time. Like what's going to make other people and showing this to other people is, is going to be a really good way to gauge that. When they see the title, immediately think like, ooh, that's something I've got to check out. Because it's, it can't just be like a really competent talk. Like it has to be marketed well uh, or else you might do a great job but if people don't see it and find it really attractive, then you might not get accepted. And for that, it really helps to look at past. If the conference or the event has had past events, to go back and see what kind of talks were given at that specific place. Because then you get a sense of what exactly that conference is looking for. Because there are a lot of conferences with a specific style. So... Like ViewConf will be obviously about content <laughs> regarding Vue and ReactConf or React Rally will be about React things. Uh, but more specifically, if you go to a JSCon, um, at least the ones in the US is tends to be a lot of it is like one framework agnostic. And also, I think JSConf is also one of those where they want cookie talks. So things that are like, I don't know, using MIDI and MIDI controllers and node bots and like that's their thing. Um, and so looking back at, pa- at like the past schedule is always useful because then you can get a feel of like what exactly this conference is like and what attendees are like. And then you can try cater a talk to that audience. Yeah, yeah that's a great recommendation. And uh, Eric was saying earlier, you, you can actually send... Uh, 
you know, more than one proposal, you can send two. Or uh, Miriam Suzanne, who like is a really, really fantastic like tech speaker, uh, she she recommends submitting three, and I actually think that's a really great practice because th there may be cases where someone really wants to accept you, but there's someone else who had a slightly better proposal on you know the topic that you submitted and submitting multiple proposals gives them more chances to say yes i don't know if we already noted this or uh, yet but another thing to know for those of you who are unfamiliar with the cfp process it's a it's usually blind so they don't see the person like they don't see you until like the later stage in the application process so it's usually um, I'm gonna. This is me speaking generally, but a lot of conferences tend to try to do that to make it easier for newer speakers or people who are not as prolific. So there's no bias, basically. And so in the beginning stages, it'll be like no name or description of the person. It's just purely the content. And then maybe later on, as they're whittling down to the, the final few, they might look at just who you are just to give a sense of, um, and usually that's just to give a read of making sure that there is diverse representation on the, on the, on the speaker lineup and so on. Sarah May also has an article that I really like on like how to write a really great conference proposal. I'll, I'll drop it in the show notes. Uh, and I, I won't bother trying to summarize it because I won't do it justice. I, I, I know that already, but definitely check it out. Uh, it's, one of the best resources that I frequently send to people who want to get better at submitting proposals. And yeah, so she, she's been involved in RubyConf, I think, for quite a while. Oh, yeah. And she's a great speaker herself. Mm -hmm. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. So we've talked quite a bit about like how you like submit talks and how you, you know, get better at speaking. I think we've covered speaking pretty well. Maybe we should transition over to another way of contributing. So, you know, there's like making educational materials, which I think is a really great way to contribute, especially early on. Even if you're not very, even if you don't feel very confident in the technology, like writing blog posts and developing videos and stuff like that, I think can actually be a really good way of solidifying your understanding of those things. Because even if you're wrong, like people on the internet will tell you that you're wrong and then you'll get better. No way. And then the, the quality, yeah, it's true. It's true. I was wrong once on the internet and a lot of people let me know. It's, yeah, they're, they're not shy about it. Nope. <laughs> some of them aren't very nice about it either. I was, but. I was wondering if, uh, Eric, do you have some specific tips for how people can get into like writing blog posts and creating videos and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, simply. To write blog posts and videos and, and do something like that, you have to find a topic that you want to learn or that's something you're already an expert on. I don't think you have to be an expert on it. I think if you, if you even want to learn a topic, sometimes the best way of learning is being able to teach it to someone else. So going out there and putting out content for something you're learning, 
Yeah, you and if you do get something wrong, you're right. <laughs> Absolutely, you'll probably have someone call you out. And depends on the community too. Uh, if you've ever posted anything on Reddit, you're definitely probably gonna get a little bit more criticism than if you just leave it on your own blog or YouTube channel or whatever. So yeah, I, I definitely look for topics that I'm interested in that I'm working on, maybe at my work or just for fun. And then I just start playing around with it. And then I come up with like a little tutorial or something fun I can share. And I, I put it out there. And, and how do you, how do you get people to actually see it? Cause like I could create like a YouTube channel and you know, maybe every video would just have zero views because no one even knows that these videos exist. That is the hard part. <laughs> like anything else in life, it's, it's about consistency. It's about sharing on your social media channels. Um, so if you, you know, put on Facebook, Twitter, if you, if you have a friendly subreddit, Reddit's a great place to go and web dev front end lately for me, for example, or R slash R programming, if you depends on what type of programming you're doing. And then sometimes you just got to think I'm doing this for myself. It doesn't matter if anybody else watches it. And then the secondary thing is, well, I want to help other people. So that's like a secondary bonus. But the first thing is, you know, I want to learn. Second is I'm teaching other people. Yeah. But also like part of being able to learn is like getting feedback from people. And I think we, I, we do want people to enjoy it. Like we might say like, you know, I'm doing this primarily for me, but if I was like a year into it and I was still getting zero views on every video, I have to admit, like, I'd be really sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's definitely, it's a process, especially when you're first starting out, you have to build that audience and you have to kind of work really hard, be consistent, put out quality content at a certain schedule you have to tell everybody you know that hey this content's out there so friends family facebook groups anywhere you can tell people that hey i put this stuff out there and then slowly but surely there's things like seo search engine optimization that ends up good content ends up bubbling up to the top people will start searching for it they'll start finding you that's one way of doing it. Another way you can certainly work with uh, like a publisher or, or somebody that already creates videos that already has a large audience. So if you don't have an audience, but you're really interested in teaching people, you could contact uh, Pluralsight, like like a couple of people like Joe does and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and a few other sites out there that will take your content and then send it to everybody. Yeah, but will a site like Pluralsight just like take anyone or do you have to be famous like Joe? <laughs> and uh, Joe's not on the podcast today, but he probably could answer that better. No, usually I think there is a, I haven't worked with them, but I, I, I think they have, generally they have an audition process. Oh, I have been through the audition process. I have been screwed by the audition process, but oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they, they were figuring some stuff out. It, it's probably better now, but yeah, the, the audition process, what they do is they make you, um, record a video and then uh, they review the video. They give you a chance to fix anything in the video and then um, they'll tell you whether or not they're going to accept courses from you or not. Yeah. And it's, yeah. So it's not, you can't just get into some of these, these places that will distribute your content. There is, there is a screening process. So you may want to practice by yourself first, maybe with your own YouTube channels, get comfortable talking in front of a, a camera or, or if you're uh, trying to write for a large 
blog, you might want to create your personal blog first and get used to writing. And so that way, when you apply for these places, that they'll accept you and you'll get paid Mm -hmm. and that they'll hopefully get your content out to more people. You can also guest blog too. That's another great way of getting your name out there. One thing that I also want to put out there, because I did some blogging early on in my career that really helped me out. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to be a level above whoever's reading it. So you can put out sort of newbie content if you're not confident that you have expert content and people will still enjoy it and use it. Yeah, and if it's something that you just learned, like odds are you might be able to explain that better than someone who's known it for five years because it's still fresh in your memory, like what made it click for you? You know, so even if it's like some basic JavaScript thing uh, or, you know, something in view that, you know, you didn't know, like a mistake that you made and then you, you figured it out. And, you know, in retrospect, you might think like, oh, okay, well, that seems like kind of a silly mistake. But if you made it, I can guarantee you like thousands and thousands and thousands of other developers have made that exact same mistake, probably many more than one time. Yeah, like you had mentioned a few podcasts ago about view set and view delete and the way you handle certain situations where you want your object to be reactive. And so I was just helping someone the other day with that because they were having that problem. So yeah, you find these little things out and if you can share with people, that that's helpful. And Twitter, uh, Twitter is a great place too. If you can, can condense your findings into a small tweet, maybe a, maybe a picture or something, that you can then, that's really useful and then get that out, out there. It could easily be picked up, retweeted, get a lot of, of a lot of, uh, traction. Do, do you recommend a specific blogging platform? I use ghost, which is a, a cool blogging platform, but I would say if you're starting off on WordPress, is pretty good. I would stay away from Medium. I know a lot of people love Medium. I think Divya, do you write on Medium? I used to, but I don't anymore. Just because I like to own my own content, <laughs> and it's nicer <laughs> that way. Yeah. I think I think if you could put it on your own blog, that's the best way to go. And so, you know, start with something simple. You can just easily get a WordPress blog up and running really quickly. Why don't you like Medium? Just out of curiosity. I just think I like. Me well, I like just having my content on my own site. If if you don't have a personal site, you can certainly use something like Medium. Also, I think Medium's changed a little bit differently. I'm definitely getting more pop-ups and more things from them. I think they're trying to turn on some sort of monetization strategy. Mm-hmm. I think they're moving towards like a way to generate ad revenue. Yeah. The other thing about Medium that is actually it's it's good for newer, like if you really don't want to set up your own blog, it's really nice because it hosts the content for you. you you can just start writing and then you automatically have access to a community of readers. Um, and also the thing about Medium is that it gets picked up by other publications or other users. And so it's an easy way for you to start like spreading content without doing a lot of work. But a lot of people who do write regularly don't like using it because they like to own their own content and be like get explicit permission to use their content. <laughs> like in various other places and so on. And which I think in medium, like they don't, nobody really asks. They just repost automatically, which is nice if that's what you want. But 
that might not be what you are looking for. So I think the other thing about where exactly to post content, if you are someone who finds the barrier to entry of creating a blog too much and you don't want to post on Medium, you can, there's a lot of product blogs out there. So for instance, if you use like CircleCI has their blog and you can guest blog for, for them. Um, and Netlify has a blog and you can guest blog for us if you'd like, which is actually a really great way for you to get traction in the community because a lot of these blogs have access to a lot of users and like a larger swath of the community. And so you can write for them as a guest blogger and you automatically have that. <laughs> like people will read that content really easily. And it's also a great way for you to be uh, like, all you need to do going back to what we were saying is like, you learn something new and you're excited about, you know, specifically for guest blogging. Um, it has to relate to that specific product. So let's say you use um, like Netlify for deploy functions or whatever. Um, then you would want to, and you used it in like in a view app, then you could write on the blog for that um, and so on. So it's a great way for you to like, blog without having to create a blog yourself or creating a community of people to read your content. Yeah. Well, and some of them will actually pay you for that. Um, yes, exactly. A lot of people will because they're like, it takes time to create content and you should be compensated for that. So. And Sarah Dresner on the view team also uh, is an editor for CSS tricks and they also accept public submissions and they have, they have some of the best SEO of like any like tech blog ever. So that's, that could be a really good way to, to get your name out too and get your content now and get feedback on it. And also when you write, for instance, if you write for CSS tricks, Sarah will review your content and work with you on making sure that it's the best post possible. So it's like really great because not only do you get access to like posting on such a, like a site with huge SEO, but you also have, someone who will help you write better. <laughs> and so that, that like makes you a better writer overall. <laughs> and, and not just someone, but Sarah, who's but a Sarah, fantastic writer. Yes, exactly. yeah. yes. And, and their other editors are also fantastic writers and that's how they right. became editors. Yeah. Just remember if you're doing a guest post, I've seen a lot of sites that have are, are they definitely want quality content. So expect to be writing, you know, a few thousand words at least and have solid examples. So this is something where you don't, you know, take a half hour and just write. You really want to put some time and effort into it. And a lot of places won't accept your guest post unless you do that. And you may want to check with them first, whatever site they have, which you, you want to guest post and talk to them first, throw, you know, pitch them your, your idea for what you're wanting to write and see if they agree with it before you, you do it. Yeah, sounds good. So I think, it, are there any other tips for getting into educational content that anyone can think of and contributing that way. We were talking about blogging there for a second. And I mean, you're, I'm always looking for guests for the podcast. So, uh, you know, again, if, if you have a topic that, you know, is in line with what we're after here on the podcast, you know, a lot of this stuff applies there too. You know, you reach out and you say, Hey, I'd like to be a guest on such and such a show. And you know, I, I talk about this, that, or the other, and it's going to, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. I remember like listening to dev chat TV and, and other podcasts, like way back, you know, 
JavaScript Jabber listening to some of the people who like are panelists on this podcast and think like, yeah, but that's really for other people. Like that's really for people who are like professional speakers and, you know, who really know what they're doing <laughs> and are like, you know, just like super, you know, famous and have been doing this stuff for so long and probably like have some kind of journalism degree or something like that. And, and now he, here I am just one of the voices on the other side and, and you can be one of the voices too. It's apparently, it's apparently not that bad. So I, I have a story on this. Um, when I was, man, I, I'd been coding semi-professionally for a year, maybe not even that. I had a friend of mine, Eric Berry. He's actually on Ruby Rogues and Elixir Mix on DevChat TV. But anyway, he had a website called Teach Me to Code, which I wound up taking over eventually. But initially, he was just looking for people to record videos so that he didn't have to come up with all the content. And he had a whole bunch of people submit videos. And I wound up... I had to write this in a blog post. Uh, I wound up doing a video for him on routing in Ruby on Rails. This is like Ruby on Rails 1.1 or 1.2. And, you know, I just walked through how to do basic routing. So again, it was super beginner content for Ruby on Rails developers. And um, in the video, you know, I kind of said, hey, th this is my first one. And I tweeted that. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned some of the software I was using. And uh, the software I was using was ScreenFlow. Well, uh, the folks over at whatever company makes ScreenFlow, I can't remember the name, uh, they reached out to me and they said, hey, well, if you're going to make more videos, uh, here's a license. And they sent me a free ScreenFlow license and a professional podcasting microphone. Uh, just out of the blue, because I was I was a little bit, you know, because I just recorded it on the onboard microphone on my system. And wait, that... are we not supposed to be doing that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> it sounded okay. <laughs> there, there are there are better mics out there, but yeah. Um, anyway, so since I had a professional podcasting mic, and because I was listening to podcasts um, like Rails Envy, I was so sad when I missed that episode with Greg Pollock. But um, I was listening to Rails Envy at the time. That gave me the confidence to reach out to Greg and say, Hey, Greg, I'm thinking about doing this podcasting thing. What do you think? And he emailed me back and said, Go for it. And, uh, you know, help me get started. And so, I mean, you start out with this really, you know, it's scary because you're thinking, I'm going to screw this up and you don't have professional equipment. And, you know, it's all good. It was good enough. It's good enough to get started. And that was all it took. Yeah, that's great. Entry to be like a podcast guest or even podcast host is, is not much, very much, um, which is good. So more people can get in and talk about what they find interesting. Yeah. And I'm working on some things to make podcasting a lot easier as far as organizing content and things like that. I mean, sitting down and recording something really isn't that terribly hard. You, the hard part is preparing the content, making sure that you know what you're talking about. Um, knowing what you're going to say, making sure that you get it uh, edited somewhat so that anything that you don't want in it comes out and then getting it posted. It's its all the the other stuff. The, the actual recording and talking isn't that bad. So, so Chuck, you probably get this question a lot, but like, what do I need to do? What are my steps that I need to take if I want to start a new podcast? Well, it's funny because people are like, well, which microphone do I get? 
And yeah, I, that's my first question. Which microphone do I get? Do I get like the Sennheiser or the I, Blue Yeti, which is what I'm talking on right now? Yeah, I mean, the Blue Yeti is what, 100 bucks, 130 bucks? It was 80 bucks when I got it. Yeah, I think it varies on Amazon. Um, I think the regular price is about 100, 110. But yeah, so they're like, do I need a professional mic? Blah, 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 blah. We've had guests that people couldn't tell the they were talking on the headphones that came with their iPhone. Just the regular ones that, you know, the, the ear pods that cost 30 bucks at Walmart. And if you're getting started and you don't know if you're going to continue with it, that's a really cheap way to go, especially if you already have a set of those. Um, there are a few other microphones that you can get. Um, even a decent broadcast mic. I have an ATR2100. And that was like 60 bucks on Amazon. 50 bucks, 60 bucks, something like that. So you don't need a really expensive setup. And that one's just USB. So you just plug it into your computer and record it. Um, you can record for free with uh, Audacity. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. So the rest of it is just having something to talk about and having somewhere to post them. So um, you don't need expensive software? Like you don't need to subscribe no. to Adobe Edition? No, Audacity will let you edit as well. You don't need a box with like knobs on it to adjust levels or something like that? Like, I have one because I'm a dork, but no, you don't. Okay. <laughs> don't you remember when we recorded at the Cards Against Humanity podcasting studio and no one noticed the audio difference? We had like professional equipment when Chris was in Chicago and it, it didn't even matter. Well, it's easier to get better quality if everybody's local, right? You just yes, plug everything yeah, into yeah. the same equipment and off you go. The flip side is, is that we have a lot of options for guests and hosts if I don't require you all to be here. And personally, I don't want to bring a whole bunch of people to my house anyway. So... Well, thanks uh, a lot. But, but anyway, there's, there are a lot of different techniques for getting better sound and things like that. But if your sound quality is good enough, then people will listen for the content. If the sound quality is not good enough, uh, you'll drive people off because it'll drive them crazy listening to it. But I mean, what we get out of Zoom is good enough. And, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in making sure we have quality hosts and quality guests than I am in having, you know, top-notch peak audio quality where you can't even hear even a little bit of hum. And for the most part, you can't anyway. So, but yeah, so you just, the rest of it, I recommend WordPress for your website, for your podcast. Really easy to get set up. You get Power PowerPress plugin, which is free. It's made by Blueberry. And then you can host, you can host on Amazon AWS. But if you're going to host long-term, it'll cost you more than hosting with like Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N.com or Blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. There's Blueberry without the E's in it.com. Both of those are terrific hosting platforms. And they'll cost you less than like AWS long term. And then how do you get stuff on like Google Play and, you know, iTunes and stuff like that? So on iTunes, if you go to the podcast page, there's a submit a podcast link. You just go in there and put in your RSS feed. And WordPress will build your RSS feed for you. And the PowerPress plugin will add all of the iTunes tags to it. So you don't actually have to do anything other than fill in a handful of fields on WordPress get your RSS feed. So you submit that RSS feed to iTunes and it'll run. And it's the same thing for Google Play. There's a form on the web. You just submit it and you're off to the races. You probably want to get some artwork done for it. Initially, when I started podcasting, I actually just got found a stock image 
that I liked and kind of worked it a little bit in like Photoshop like program and, you know, put my podcast title on it. Um, another one, I just took a headshot that I had had taken and, you know, put the name of the show underneath it. So you don't have to get that fancy, but yeah, the, the artwork does make your show stand out in iTunes and Google play, but that's it. That that's really all I have to do. And then people think you're a professional. That's right. And they, they hear you and they think, wow, this is obviously someone who like has some kind of certification or bought a lot of expensive equipment. Oh, I'm certifiable. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> no, but, but just to summarize, cause you know, we did talk for a minute about these things. Really, all you need is a microphone, something to talk about. You set up WordPress and it'll do 90, 95%. And then you submit it to the podcast directories. That's it. And then record frequently and put your episodes up where someone can get them. And then just keep improving. Yep. Yeah. I like the idea cool. of good enough. I think. Anytime you start anything out there, especially when you're doing anything online, blogging, podcasting, doing videos, make sure your mantra is, this is good enough. Because if you are trying to go for perfection or trying to be amazing, there's some exceptions, then you're going to spend way more time than than you can. And you may never actually ship. You may never finish. So good enough is a good way to think about it. Well, the other thing is, is that not everybody is going to enjoy podcasting. Not everybody's going to enjoy being on YouTube. Not everybody's going to enjoy blogging. So don't invest a ton of money into it until you've done it, you know. So for podcasting, I recommend that people release six to 10 episodes before they go and invest in a, in a nicer mic and things. Because by then they'll figure out, you know what, this this talking into the mic thing isn't my thing. And then they can go and they can figure out, oh, maybe video tutorials are more my thing. And the same thing with the video tutorials, right? Use QuickTime to record your screen for the video tutorials first before you go drop 80 bucks on a ScreenFlow license. And that way you can figure out, oh yeah, I really enjoy this. And then you can go and invest in what's going to make it incrementally better. Yep. Cool. So we've talked a lot about podcasting now and different ways to create educational materials. I think one of the ways that you can contribute that people often think of first when when they think of contributing to open source is contributing to code repositories. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about like, what are the best ways to get into that? Uh, does anybody, would anyone like to start or should I jump in? Well, I know that some repos actually put out, here's a good one for a newbie to tackle, or here's, an, here's a good one for a new person to this repository to tackle. Yeah, they might have issues with labels like, mm -hmm. uh, like contribution welcome or good first contribution. Yep. And so you just reach out to the, don't, don't just pick it up and try and tackle it. Typically what you want to do is reach out to the person who owns the repository or the, the main contributor to the repository and talk to them about it first. Make sure you understand what they need and then, and then go in and do it. Because they may also come and tell you, oh, well, I've got two other people who are trying to tackle that one too. Yeah, like look at the contribution guidelines if they have one. Yep. There's also Hacktoberfest, which is usually in October, the whole month of October. GitHub, or actually, I think it's GitHub and DigitalOcean, or maybe it's just DigitalOcean. But they publish just all of the open source projects that are looking for contributors, either new or veteran contributors. And so it's a good way for you to, because especially when you're starting out, the question is always, what should I contribute to and how? And 
that is a really great way for you to look at all the possible things you can contribute to and then pick whichever ones you want to contribute to. Because a lot of them are like actively, especially during Hacktoberfest, which is like the month of October, it's like a lot of people are very eager to get you involved in open source if you haven't already been involved or if you are, you know, haven't been involved for a while, like inactive and trying to get back into it um, and so on. So that's a really great thing to get involved in. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this, this episode might be released <laughs> before then, which will be great because then that's like a plug for Hacktoberfest. Yeah, I think by the end of October, if you've submitted four pull requests, yes, you get a T-shirt. And I think I think it's just submitted, so yes. they don't technically they don't have to. You, yes, exactly. You just have. But to please it. do not submit like junk pull requests just so you get your four. <laughs> but if you do, then you'll get a free T-shirt, which is actually like a nice T-shirt. Like it's a yeah. good quality one. Like it actually is comfortable and looks nice. And you also get a bunch of free stickers, and everybody loves stickers. Yeah, I think if you just do one, you get stickers, uh, which is which is fine. So, like, if you feel intimidated that you can't do four, if you do it just one, you still get the props of like, yay, I did something. Yeah. Oh, that didn't happen this last Oktoberfest. Really? Oh. No, I had I had three pull requests. I I I merged like probably like a a couple hundred like pull requests. And I, I pushed up a lot of commits, but that stuff doesn't count. It doesn't count if you just merge stuff and if you push oh, up commits. Oh, you have to like actually commit access. Mm. Yeah. So, so yeah, maybe I maybe what I should have done is I should have like submitted pull requests to library oh, or like repositories that I had access to, and then I could have just merged myself. <laughs> great, great PR, Chris. I love it. Keep up the great work. Face yeah. tab. Yeah. You're the best. Yeah. <laughs> Thumbs up. Everyone loves you. <laughs> yep. One other thing I'm going to jump in here with. Um, I read a book by David Hoover, and it was Apprenticeship Patterns is the name of the book. And he talks about sweeping the dojo. So it's it's doing the work that the masters don't want to do kind of thing. And so that's documentation maintenance or tests maintenance or things like that. And what's interesting is is it's not the glamorous work. But if you come in and fix my typos, I freaking love you, right? If you can come document something that is hard for me to explain to other people because you went in and figured it out and you can explain it more clearly because you just learned it, which is something we talked about a little bit ago, you know, that that's that's terrific. That really helps everybody else out. And yeah, it's not this glamorous, hey, I invented this new algorithm that revolutionizes uh, food shortages in Africa or something, but it you know, it, it solves a problem for people and it'll put you on the radar of these contributors. And from there, it may help you get a better job. It may help you get more exposure. I mean, there, there are all these payoffs that come from all the things we're talking about too. But the flip side of it is, is it does make a difference. And if you don't feel like you can contribute deep code solutions, you can still contribute in these ways and it makes a difference. Yeah, there's a library. I don't remember what it's called, but it scans a code base for spelling mistakes, you know, in, including, you know, checking camel case or sometimes, you know, just checking comments. Like I think there are different options. Uh, and so you could use like one of these tools to like clone a repository, scan the code base, and then maybe fix a spelling mistake in a comment. Mm-hmm. And that's a contribution. 
And that's something that's easily, that's easy for them to merge. Like they don't have to see like, oh, just it's a comment change. Does this break our tests? Like they don't have to worry about anything like that. That's super simple to merge. There'll be no thinking about that. And I think uh, Chuck mentioned this a little bit as well. Like if you do small contributions that other people don't want to do, like or tests or whatever, it puts you under the radar of contributors. And what tends to happen is that the contributors then look to you when they have specific things that they don't have time to, to work on, but will be quick fixes. And so you start getting that relation, you start building that relationship. And so now instead of you having to look for issues, people give you issues and give you more responsibility. And it's a great way to actually ramp up contributions and start becoming more active, which can actually lead to you being invited to be a core contributor onto a project. And I know a lot of people who have done that, like they'll contribute to Chai or Mocha and then they'll become a core contributor. And I think it's the same with Vue. You could like contribute to Vue and then you can be a Vue core contributor or join the core team, which is like really, really nice because then your your contributions start matter. Like, I mean, they always matter, but you no, have more. <laughs> well, <laughs> like words, but you can start making an impact on a library that you use and like care about a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. I've seen a number of people that have become committers on things like Ruby on Rails, the repository, that never contributed a line of Ruby to it. Right? They they got the commit bit because they kept making incremental improvements to the to the thing, and eventually the the core team just said. We trust you. You're really helping out. And we don't want to have to review your stuff anymore because we know it's good enough. Is that for Vue.js, for Vue specifically, is there a core contributor guideline? I mean, how who decides become who becomes a core contributor? Is that just a... Good can, question. That's a very good question. So if, uh, if you likes you, you're in. I think I'm a friend of core team at the moment. <laughs> but right right now, it's it's Evan who makes those decisions. Uh, but we are actually working on an official process so that we we have some like clear steps for like how new people you know join the team, what that means, what the expectations are. Uh, because currently, we don't have the clearest expectations. We don't have the clearest path. So that is something that we're we're looking to contribute and, and actually. Jacob Schatz at, at GitLab is helping us produce that document because they have like a really, really fantastic uh, handbook that they use at GitLab that is actually open source, if you want to see it, that goes over like their, their internal values, like how hiring works, like how to deal with like specific issues. And we want the same kind of resource for our internal team. And he's, he's helping us produce that. Is there an also a process for people who don't contribute it enough? Like if you become a core contributor, but then you don't do anything for like six months, can they kick you out? <laughs> I, I will chime in on this. Wow. I have never seen a team that was on top of things enough or cared enough to remove the commit bit from people once they had it, unless they were doing bad stuff that made pain for other people. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably when we do something like that. There are like part of what we're trying to answer is like, when does that happen? And we do want to know, like, we do want to have a clear process so that people also know, like, wh what kind of contribution level do I have to maintain? 
you know, in order to still be on the team, because part of being on the team is not only writing code or producing things for the the core view ecosystem, but also representing view to some degree. And we want to make sure that uh, the people who are representing view like are actually involved in the things that are happening. So yeah, it is it is a complicated question. We're trying to get a better answer to it, and uh, we hopefully will very soon. But in the meantime. When people ask, like, how did you next become a contributor of you? I became a contributor of you by contributing. Or how did you get on the team of you? Like, I, I, I started contributing. I was, you know, answering questions on issues. I was contributing code. I was discussing ideas for, like, API designs and, like, taking part in those discussions. And eventually what happened is Evan decided, actually, that was before a core team existed. So Evan decided... Like he couldn't do this on his own anymore. And he invited me and I think it was maybe four or five or six other people originally to that original core team. And basically he did it so that he wouldn't have to like merge our pro requests. Like he could give us some permission to like do specific things. And he wouldn't, we wouldn't have to say like, oh, hey, Evan, can you, you know, merge this and review it? Or can you, you know, publish this new version of a library? We just made a bug fix. And so that this just, decreases the bureaucracy that that has to happen in order for like you to keep on functioning you to keep on working so and keep on improving. what's nice about that is that you get people contributing at that level they make that level of a commitment and then you get all of this other input from all of their experience too i mean there are huge payoffs all the way around for this kind of thing yeah, and, and what, imagine that like any open source project after a while becomes a huge burden on the the person that created it and bringing people in is is core contributors or, or high level that have merge they can merge requests that makes things so much easier because eventually you're going to be in this role where you're like okay now i gotta there's 50 pull you know there's 10 pull requests here and all these questions and it just becomes a burden i guess yeah one of our core team members ended up joining the team mostly by like answering questions for people on issues answering questions on the forum, answering questions on, on the chat. Uh, and that's Torsten Lundborg or, or Linusborg, as you might know him. That's his, his handle on Twitter and on GitHub. And he's actually not a software developer by training. He just does it as a hobby. And you know he's produced some things uh, for work, incidentally, I think, uh, because of that. But his background is actually as a business analyst, and that's his job. <laughs> That's his day job. So you can, you can definitely contribute without contributing a lot of code uh, by just like being a helpful member of the community and, you know, keep on helping people. And he was actually a guest on this podcast. So if you want to go back and listen to that episode, uh, I highly recommend it. He talks a lot more about how he joined the core team. Yep, I remember that one. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And let's see. So we've, we've talked about I think everything except for maybe organizing events. Yeah. Do we have time for it? I could speak to that a little bit, but I, yeah, I need to get us to picks. So, Mm -hmm. and I think Joe would probably be a better person to talk about that. And Um, I think he covered that a little bit last week. Yeah. Well, and I know that some of the rest of you have done some of it too, but Joe does it a lot. So anyway, yeah. All right. Well, let's do picks. Because I have an Angular podcast in about 10 minutes. 
Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Eric, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Yeah, I have one, just one pick. I've been really deep diving into headless CMSs lately. So those are like content management systems that you don't necessarily use the use the management side, but you don't actually use the visual side of it. You connect to your you connect to it via an API. So um, I went to this website, headlesscms.org. And it just lists all the different content management systems out there. You can also look at the ones that are open source, ones that you could host yourself, but the ones that are also like services, like um, like Strapi or Net- Netlify CMS, uh, which is great. Or like Graph CMS is another like a service one, Storyblock. There's so many out there, but I, I just like this website. It's just a quick reference to figure out you know what's out there and, and what you can use. So that's my pick for today. Awesome. Uh, Divya, what are your picks? Cool. My first pick is a blog post written by Montreal about how they used Vue's reactivity system for building a 3D editor, which I think is really, it's really, really fascinating because it's something that I don't normally deal with. And so it's like an interesting way, an interesting application of Vue. And then my is a post on The Verge called the Twitch streamers who spend years broadcasting to no one because it relates to what we talked about earlier where you create content, but no one actually consumes your content. And so that post or that article actually goes into detail on specific users on Twitch who have zero users, but continue doing what they are doing because they really love what they do, um, despite how demoralizing it is that no one watches it. So those are my two picks. Awesome. Chris, what are your picks? Okay. My picks are, first of all, if you want more cat pictures in your life, uh, I have a couple of recommendations. And one of them is uh, the cat content Twitter account, which is really good. I, I like it because it gives you a lot of really cute cats, but not cats getting hurt. I don't like seeing the ones that are cats getting hurt. That makes me sad. I don't want to see a cat like fail a jump and then hit his head. That's, that's very sad for me. And also, if you aren't already a patron of Guillaume on Patreon, he actually has a level which I think is $21 a month where you get not only like all of the rewards that he has already, but some extra cat pictures. And he has a very cute cat and he, he takes some very good photographs. And so you can support you and get like more cat pictures in your life by supporting Guillaume on Patreon. And that's uh, if you search for Guillaume Chow View Patreon, 
you'll find it. And we'll also drop a link in the show notes. And I also want to talk about uh, the latest season of The Great British Bake Off, which I, I don't know if it's on Netflix now. I don't, or it's called The Great British Baking Show on Netflix because like Nabisco yeah. owns Bake Off or something like that. Uh, but anyway, it's so yeah, good. I, I really, really loved it. It's, it's a nice show. If you haven't heard of it before, it's, it just makes you feel good. It's a, like a reality competition show, but everyone's just nice to each other. You know, so instead of like someone getting like kicked off in a week and they're like, you are terrible, get out. And it's like, yeah, he was, he was a really strong baker and we wish him all the best. <laughs> and they have a giant hug at the end. <laughs> yeah, and they, and they, like everybody hugs, everybody, everybody goes around and just like does hugs when someone has to leave. It's, ah, it's so nice. And they make delicious things. I actually don't really like sweet things, uh, but I appreciate the craft that that goes into like the beautiful creations that are probably very delicious for people who like sweet things. Uh, yeah. So definitely check that out. And I think that the two new hosts do a good job too. I like the old hosts better. They were funny. They were awesome. Yeah, I think the new ones are funny too. Uh, no, no. In the it, listen, it took me a few episodes to warm up to them. Have you watched the whole season yet? No, I've only watched the first two episodes. So well, I, I, I am withholding judgment on Prue because I like Well, her. I took a day off to just watch the whole season <laughs> <laughs> this weekend. So I've seen the whole season. I, I think they will warm to you. So if, you, if you're feeling at first like, ah, oh, I miss Sue and uh, I, I can't remember the other one's name. But if you, if you miss them, I, I miss them too at first. And I, I got used to them. It did take the new hosts a little bit of time, maybe a few episodes to sort of find their stride. But mid-season, I know I was firmly like, yeah, these are good. They're doing a good job. Awesome. All right. And those well, are my I'll picks. have to give them more of a chance. All right. So my picks, uh, I've got a couple. One is um, I've been listening to this book. Uh, for those that don't know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Zig Ziglar. Uh, he actually passed away like five years ago or something. Um, but he, when he was like 81 or 82, he had a fall he fell down his stairs and then he wrote this book called embrace the struggle which is basically about struggling with hard things in life and anyway it has been a tremendous book to listen to um and it's you know i've gone through stuff this year and uh so yeah so it's it's been really helpful for me at least to listen to um i've kind of had some ahas about the way that i've thought about things and it's it's really helped me process some of the stuff that I've I've had to go through. So um, I'm going to pick that. Um, another thing that I'm going to pick, and Eric's not here because I kind of like his feedback on writing a book, but I've been using a system called Softcover. That's softcover.io. Um, it is not for the faint of heart, but you do get to write your book in Markdown. Um, and uh, I've I've really been liking it for my book. So I've been writing this Get a Coder Job book which you can get at getacoderjob.com or devchat.tv. Click on shop. Um, but anyway, it's been, it's been just a really nice way to put the book together. So what does not for the faint of heart mean? You have to install like six different things uh, in order to make it work. Oh, okay. Um, you also have to have Ruby on your system and install the gem, the soft cover gem, um, which isn't a big deal. Most people, you know, already have Ruby on their system if they're on a Mac. Um, and it's pretty easy to get that far. But uh, you had to install uh, LaTeX, I think is what he calls it. It's spelled LaTeX. 
Um, and you have to install a few other plugins um, or systems to make it all work. And that was a little bit tricky. It wasn't terrible, but it, it took me a half hour to set up. So, so be comfortable with the command line if you're yes. going to try it out. Yeah, and I think one of them, you install the app and then you use the command line tools. So you have to modify your path in your bash RC in order to find those command line tools. And so you, you kind of have to know a little bit of what you're doing with command line in order to make it work. And then um, I've actually been writing it in VS Code. So I'm writing my book in VS Code, which is kind of cool. Um, just using a Markdown plugin. And then I just set up a build task, which runs the builds for the book. And then I also set up another task that just runs WC, which is the uh, Linux utility to do word count. And so I just, I do a cat command on all my chapters and then I pipe it into the uh, word count uh, WC command. And so um, I, my goal is to write a thousand pages every day. Um, I, you know, I take weekends and holidays off. But uh, anyway, so I just run that when I start and then I run it periodically while I'm working until I hit a thousand words. And then I decide whether or not I'm ready to stop or not. So if I'm in the zone, then I don't. And if I'm not in the zone, or if I'm not sure where to go next, then I stop. So whenever I hit that natural stopping place, that's where I quit. But anyway, really been getting into it. I've been writing this section on how to gather information from people who work for the company you want to work for. So anyway, them's my picks. Also go to swag.devchat.tv if you want a shirt or stickers or something like that. That's it. So we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.